you know, I am going to in, end up talking a little bit about wisdom later, but we've got to, well, we'll start with wisdom. You, you, you've, I'm sure you know this, you've heard this, right? The difference between wisdom and knowledge. You, the knowledge is that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is that you don't put in a fruit salad. Uh, I was going to say, wisdom is that, that tomato sauce is not a fruit smoothie. That, yeah, so, so wisdom and knowledge, we know that, all right? So before we get to wisdom, though, um, we've got to talk about scandal. Um, and there's always lots of scandals around. And, and there, I mean, everyone loves a good scandal, don't we? As long as you're not at the very centre of the scandal. There's been some scandals on BBC News uh, for the last couple of weeks. About a month ago, one of the, one of the news presenters who's been around for like 40 years had to step down because of a scandal. Um, he was... Uh, what was it? I guess, I guess grooming, I think that's really what they called it. He was grooming a young guy in, for a homosexual relationship, like 40 years younger than him, and there was, there was questions about whether the young guy was actually of age or not, and just nastiness, he had to resign. And then this week, another 60-year-old BBC presenter who's been on the news forever and ever has had to step down because he asked a teenage girl to send him photographs. Not like of flowers and birds and trees and things, but scandalous. And of course, the, the tabloid papers love it, but the scandal. And there's always scandals, and it's, it's often with the rich and the famous, right? I mean, and, and for some of us of a certain age, you just need to say, Monica Lewinsky. Uh, yeah, there, there's that. Uh, of course, more recently, there's, there's Andrew and Epstein, dear old Prince Andrew. And um, all, all that's gone on there. And of course, there's no shortage of scandals in our own country and our own government. We don't need to go overseas to find scandals. And in fact, if you're excited enough about it, there's even a TV show called Scandal. Does anybody, has anybody ever watched Scandal? No one's even admitting to it. I'm sure half of you do. And of course, sadly, the church is not exempt from scandals as well. Um, Ravi Zacharias, about two years ago, passed away, and on his deathbed, it was discovered that he had part ownership in massage parlors, um, and that he would visit them regularly. And this is a guy that was like on the preaching circuit, just you know, uh, Bill Hybels, uh, pastor of what was at one time the biggest church in America, had to resign, step down two years before his retirement because of. Um, inappropriate behavior with um, one of his PAs while they were on uh, preaching engagements around the countryside, sharing hotels and, you know, anyway. Um, Hillsong and all the stuff that's gone on with Hillsong recently, there's a documentary that's just been made called Hellsong um, to expose just some of the stuff that's gone on there. So it's not like, you know, church is exempt from scandals. To consider something scandalous means that it is offensive and disgraceful. It's more than just a little bit of gossip. I mean, we can all deal with gossip, but to be, to be scandalous means it's like offensive, it's nasty, it's shocking, it's improper, it's reprehensible. Okay? We're going to read today that Paul says the message of the cross of Jesus is a scandal. And not just is it a scandal, but he also says it's absurd. It makes no sense. It's just plain silly. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 17. 
and read about the scandal of the cross. Uh, On Corinthians 1 verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of, the, of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It's confusing. Just follow along as best as you can. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with elegant, uh, sorry, eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Okay, so, he goes all over the place. Let me try and unpack some of it, right? So, Paul had just been, remember, he'd been in Athens before he came to Corinth. And while he was in Athens, he'd spent some time debating with the scholars of the age. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, I said that Athens was kind of the center of learning. It was the Oxford, Cambridge of the day. And so, if you wanted intellectual stimulation, you go to Athens. And Paul, having spent a couple of months in Athens, moves on from there to Corinth. And that's kind of like going from Oxford to Vegas. From the height of learning to the cesspot of, cesspit of just anything goes and do whatever you like. And it feels like, it seems like when you read in the book of Acts, that, that Paul in Athens... Preaching and discussing and debating wasn't really getting anywhere. There wasn't huge conversions and masses of people being changed. And some people have suggested that when Paul left Athens and came to Corinth, he changed his tactics, or his tic-tacs, whichever way. And that he got to Corinth and decided, you know what, the whole debate and, and, and trying rational argument just doesn't seem to get anywhere. And so Paul comes to Corinth and says, I've made up my mind to, to, 
to, to do things a little different. In fact, I'm going to come to Corinth and what I'm going to do is preach Jesus who died. That's going to be the message. And amazingly, that's the message that sticks. That's the message that works. You youngsters, you have no idea who Billy Graham was, do you? <laughs> but some of the older people will remember Billy Graham. Um, he, he started preaching in the 1940s um, and preached all over the world. He was, he was never the pastor of a church, but he was a traveling evangelist. And, and, and what, he, what he would do is he'd arrive in a town, I think his first major crusade is what they called them back in those days, politically incorrect term now, but what was then, then called a crusade was he started his first one, I think, in Los Angeles. And he put up a tent and thousands came. And he would then, from then on, move from town to town, city to city, the advanced teams, preparation, whatever, and he would fill sports stadiums with people coming to hear the gospel. And it's estimated that Billy Graham, over 50 years of his life, preached to over 1 billion people. It's quite impressive. Um, and lots of people impacted by Billy Graham's message. Now, in the early 1950s, well, about 1955, 56, he'd already become a bit of a phenomenon, preaching phenomenon around the world, um, and he was invited to come and speak at Cambridge University. And so let me try and read a little bit of, 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 of what somebody said about him. Um, so he fills stadiums around the world. And, and here's the cool thing about Billy, just by the way. In 50 years of preaching, never a hint of scandal with him. It's like, well done. It's not many preachers can get that far. Um, bit of a legend. He says, at that time, there were about 8,000 students at the University of Cambridge. And each night... Billy Graham packed the little church hall with 2,000 students and members of faculty. On that first Monday and Tuesday night, Billy Graham delivered his prepared remarks and something incredible happened. Nothing. <laughs> because for a Billy Graham, even a young Billy Graham, for nothing to happen was a big deal. You see, he, he got into his head, and he, he, t he tells the story afterwards, that he got into his head that he's going to the intellectual elite of the day, and so he'd better brush up his skills. I mean, he's just some, uh, some you know, Southern Baptist American dude with minimal education, can barely speak the English language. So he thought he needed to brush up on his eloquence and that he needed to, to engage in some kind of rational debate and discussion in order to appeal to the intelligentsia of the day. And he says that he struggled those first two days. He spent months preparing his, his messages to reach the intellectuals of the day. And he, he battled his way through it. And it all made perfectly good sense. And everyone went, that was nice. But nothing happened. And someone said to him on, on the Tuesday afternoon, Billy, you're not one of the guys on his team. He said, Billy, you're not getting anywhere because you've changed your message. So listen to this. On that Wednesday night... Billy Graham set aside his prepared remarks and said, let me tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. A guy called Dick Lucas um, writes this. He was there. He says, this is the eyewitness account of Dick Lu Lucas on that Wednesday night. He says, I'll never forget that night. It was the totally packed chancel. Uh, I was sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg. <laughs> 
and the chaplain of the college who was to be a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night and he began at Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood just flowed all over the place, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they liked, disliked and everything they dreaded. At the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed behind. So two nights of rational debate go nowhere. Preach about the cross and the blood? I mean, that's just nasty, right? 400 stayed behind. So Paul arrives in Corinth and says, here's what I want to do in the city of Corinth. I want to preach about Jesus and about the cross. I want to preach about Jesus and his death. That's it. That's all it's about. And it's, it's a risk. And, and it's still a risk to preach about the blood and the cross and all that kind of nasty stuff today. In fact, a lot of churches and church growth seminars and whatever would advise that preachers avoid speaking about death and crucifixion and the blood because it's nasty and no one wants to think about blood and human blood on a Sunday morning. It's just gross. And I mean, to be honest, wouldn't you rather have a three-point sermon on how to be happy? <laughs> or how to make your husband happy? Mm, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Let me change my sermon quickly. Um, or how to make your husband a better person. We don't need that one. <laughs> we don't need that one. And Paul knows his audience. He knows the people that he's going to interact with. There are broadly two groups of people that he's going to interact with when he gets to Corinth. The first group are the Jews. He's going to go to the synagogue, and that's exactly what he does. He goes to the synagogue first because there's a commonality. We share the old scriptures. Paul is an, a trained Pharisee, and he's going to speak to the Jews first, and he's going to preach there, and the Jews were good, respectable people, and they initially were very eager to hear what Paul had to say. I mean, Paul's come and said, look, let me tell you about this Messiah, and they've been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah who's going to come and rescue and deliver them. And Paul says, let me come and tell you all about this Messiah. The Messiah that you've been waiting for is a man that died on the cross. And the Jews go, scandalous. Can't be. And we read here that uh, the message of the cross is, uh, is, is a stumbling block to the Jews. That, with that, that little phrase, stumbling block, is the word scandal. It's a scandal. It can mean a stumbling block. It can mean a trap to trap you in. It can mean something deeply offensive. Um, that's what it means. Deeply, deeply offensive. The message of the cross to his Jewish hearers was shocking, disgraceful, reprehensible. And we know why. God's Messiah was going to come in power. He was going to ride on a horse. He was going to be a David on steroids. He was going to get rid of the Romans, set up his own throne. The Jews would rule the world. That's what it was going to be. And here's Paul announcing that this supposed Messiah is going to hang on a cross. God said in the Old Testament that anyone who gets nailed to a tree is under God's curse. How can a cursed person 
how can a cursed man be the saviour of the world, the, the Messiah of the Jews? It, it, no, it's, it, it, it was a disgusting thought for the Jews. It would be, when you talk about the cross and crucifixion, you, you're in a polite society, you turn up your nose and you turn away. We, we, we don't want a Messiah that dies like this. In fact, we know failed Messiahs end up on the cross. That's who ends up on a cross. And so Paul comes saying, I'm going to speak to the Jews. And how on earth will any Jewish person ever turn to Jesus when the message I preach to them is deeply, deeply offensive? going to offend you. Your Messiah was nailed to a cross. The second group that Paul was going to speak to were the Greeks. Corinth was a Greek city full of Greeks. Uh, even though it was a moral cesspit, it was still a city of Greeks and the Greeks loved their philosophy and the pursuit of wisdom and their pursuit of knowledge and they loved their discussions and their debates. And, and we even st still speak today about the, the Greek philosophers back then, Aristotle and Plato and Aristotle and <laughs> we still talk about the, the, the philosophers of the Greek world today and Paul says if I preach this word of the cross to the Greeks they'll call it absurd right the, to the um, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles the word foolishness absurd ridiculous a joke The message of the cross is not something that could be taken seriously in any way. It, it makes no sense. How, again, how can a beaten and broken God bring salvation? How can someone who is crucified save you? It, it, to the Greek mind, that's absurd. To, to us, it's somewhat absurd. Crucifixion, just so that you to remind yourselves, it wasn't a particularly common form of execution and death. It was reserved for the very worst and the very dis most despicable of human beings. Slaves could be crucified. Traitors and rebels could be crucified. That was about it. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. You could be a dreadful Roman citizen and you could deserve the death penalty, but you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be nailed to a cross because you're Roman. That doesn't happen to Romans. It was reserved for the very worst of people. And the idea that a God would die like this is absurd. And the idea that anyone who did die like this could be of any help to any of us, completely absurd. The message of the cross is both absurd and scandalous. It is ridiculous and deeply offensive. And the cross still remains somewhat offensive today. Some of you have crosses in your ears, or around your neck, or maybe tattooed on your... somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> but, I love this story. I, was, I, I read it in preparing this week. Derek Kidner says this. He says, um, Patricia Gearing's daughter died in 1998. That's not that long ago. Some of us can still remember the last century. She died in 1998, and her grave in a small town in England was marked by a simple cross. But Mrs. Gearing was instructed to remove it by the local authorities. Their rules state, crosses are discouraged as excessive use of the supreme Christian symbol is undesirable. So, the family were given permission to erect a headstone featuring Mickey Mouse instead. 
<laughs> Don't you love that? Because the cross still offends. And again, th- I mean, let's think about it for a moment. In all honesty, if, if you were not a Christian this morning and not accustomed to the idea, I mean, of a cross here, it is kind of offensive. One Jewish author wrote, putting a cross in your church would be akin to a Jewish synagogue having a gas chamber on display. It's that kind of offensive. I mean, how does it sound, right, to, to, to anyone who's, who's not church, not, in, not, not a Christian? The, the great God of the universe, should he exist, becomes a human being, steps down in human form, and instead of living it up and granting wishes to all his favorite followers, he gets nailed to a piece of wood. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? And Paul says it's this senseless, ridiculous, offensive message that I'm going to preach. And Paul says, I came to you not to, not to baptize people. I came to you not to, not to create some kind of fancy university thing. I came to you to preach the message of the cross. He says, when I came, I resolved to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Not even Christ and Him exalted. Not even Christ and His miracles. Not even Christ and, you know, filling a stadium and feeding everyone from a happy meal. But Christ crucified. That's the message. And again, you've got to think, what is the smart thing to preach about in the church today? If you want to draw a crowd and get all the people in and, and make a difference and make an impact. Surely I should be telling you this morning how to be better people. Um, you know, how to lift yourself up, boost your self-esteem a little bit. Um, you know, those are the kind of messages we want. Self-help, you can do it, you can be all you can be. Just follow your heart. You know, off you go. That's what we want, right? We want, we want sermons about victory and sunshine and blue skies. We want, we want to go home with something nice and practical. The pastor said, I must forgive my husband. That, that, that's wisdom. It's wisdom right there. And wisdom would say, surely more must be done. Surely there must be more to this Christianity thing than a bloodied man on a cross. If we were going to start a new religion today, how would we start it? Would we really start it by saying, let me tell you about a guy who died. In fact, let's start it by killing someone. That sounds like a, you know, I could, I could see that. Um, but yeah, we, we wouldn't want to start a, a new religion based on irrationality and stupidity. And yet Paul says this is the message to both Greeks and Jews. It is, the, in fact, the wisdom of God and the power of, the God, power of God. It's, it's not folly and foolishness and absurdity. It's God's wisdom. And it's not scandalous and offensive. It's deeply powerful. And so he goes on to say, where then is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Can they get us to God? Can they fix us? What has all the rational scientific philosophy of the last thousand years brought us? Well, it's brought us the internet. That's nice. It's brought us cell phones. It's brought us air travel. It's brought us nanobots. It's brought us those little plastic things at the end of your shoelaces so that your shoelaces don't fray. Isn't science wonderful? It's brought Jackie Vision. She got lasered. Now she doesn't need glasses. 
Um, so, I mean, it's great, right? Science has made all sorts of, come up with all sorts of cool things to make our lives easier and more comfortable. But as a human species, we remain burdened by guilt and a deep sense of lostness and despair. And science and entertainment and high learning just doesn't seem to fill our souls. So let me tell you about someone else. A gentleman by the name of Albert Camus. Albert Camus. Anyone ever heard of Albert Camus? He's not a French rugby player. He was a philosopher uh, of the last century. Uh, and he was very, very popular in the 1960s and 1970s. And he was, he was the wise man of the age. He was the scholar. He was the philosopher that Paul is kind of talking about. He is one of the, one of the bravest people I think that I know. No, well, no, I don't know. One of the bravest people that I have read about. I don't know. You know what I mean. Um, because here's what he did. He pursued his philosophy to its natural and obvious end, which most people don't want to do. So, And you may have never heard of Albert Camus. But let me tell you that you have been deeply, deeply influenced by him. Um, because he was the thing that students had to read in philosophy and whatever in the 1970s. And his philosophy has impacted how universities teach. And his thinking, you may never have heard it put in these words in this form, but his thinking has come to dominate our society. We're just not brave enough to pursue it to the ends that he takes it to. Mr. Camus' entire philosophy is based on the... Oh, wait, I'm skipping apart. Let me try this. Start at the beginning. Albert Camus makes a rather bold claim on the meaning of life. There isn't one. And we can't make one either. He argues that it is impossible for us to find a satisfying answer to the question of the meaning of life. And any attempt to impose a meaning on the universe will end in disaster. Because whatever meaning we choose will just be sent up later. We'll, we'll get to why in a moment. He denies that science, philosophy, society or religion could ever create a meaning of life that would be immune to the problem of absurdity. Okay, so he's, he's examined life and gone, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, and if I try and find a purpose and try and impose that purpose, that meaning, onto life, I will end up being disappointed because actually I'm just imposing purpose, we'll read it in a moment, on something that is in a universe that is irrational and has no grand purpose or design behind it. His entire philosophy is based on the idea of the absurd. He says, humans have a drive to find meaning in things, and where we can't find meaning in things, we try and create meaning. However, he says, the universe is cold and indifferent to the quest of meaning, and we will always be faced with absurd situations where our attempts to find meaning fail. He says, the universe is just random atoms that randomly bump into each other, and how on earth do random atoms create any kind of meaning or purpose? This universe just simply runs, stuff happens, and you die, and there is no meaning, no purpose, no value to any of it. Our lives are meaningless and will remain so. Are you feeling excited at the moment to go home? <laughs> However, Albert Camus doesn't see this meaninglessness as bad. 
He explains that to understand that life is absurd is the first step to being fully alive. When you finally admit that your life has no meaning, then you can truly live. While the problem of living in a world devoid of meaning is a big one, it's one that can be solved like any other. What makes life worth living? Well, across all his work, he praises sunshine, women, the beach, kissing, dancing, and good food. He loves sports. He took great enjoyment in the little things and encourages us to do the same. Just because life is meaningless doesn't mean it can't be enjoyed. Meaningless is just the background effect like gravity. It's just there. Enjoy what you have. Camus critiqued those who try to endure the meaninglessness of life by imposing meaning on it. While that can bring comfort, those systems of meaning are doomed to failure because the universe remains indifferent to us. Random events happen and we just face meaninglessness. Soren Kierkegaard is another person that I wish I'd known. He was a Danish philosopher who pursued the same rational reasoning as Albert Camus. And Camus was very upset with him because Kierkegaard understood that life was absurd and fled to God instead of embracing meaninglessness and absurdity. He suggests that we, so Camus suggests we embrace meaninglessness. And so here we are, faced like these old Greeks, with the meaningless, meaninglessness, absurdity of the cross, in a meaningless and absurd life. And you may have never experienced the bleakness of what Albert Camus says, but does not our world, by and large, run in those principles? YOLO. You only live once. So, indulge in today, because what's the point? Our world lives with the idea that there is no greater meaning behind this life other than enjoy myself while I can. What will ever give meaning to this absurd, meaningless life? And Paul says, the only thing that gives meaning to this absurdity is the wisdom of God. Whereas C.S. Lewis says, it comes from the God who stoops to conquer. The God who comes to, to, to earth and enters the absurd. In an act of apparent foolishness, God comes and dies. He doesn't call on angels to fight back. He dies. And in that death, the absurdity of life dies. In this act of foolishness, God saves many who believe from the meaningless absurdity of this life. And the folly of the cross becomes the source of meaning and purpose and hope in life because it is the place of forgiveness and the removal of guilt. And the bloodied man on the cross takes upon himself the sins of the world. He becomes the liar. He becomes the adulterer. He becomes the murderer. He becomes the gossip. He becomes the thief. He becomes the town drunk. He becomes the racist. He becomes the oppressor. He becomes the self-righteous and the religious do-gooder. And in an absurd turning of the tables, he becomes all that you are so that you can become what he is. You who were cursed have become blessed, so that he who was blessed, other way around, he that was blessed became cursed, so that you who were cursed could become blessed. The scandal and the offense of the cross is this, that he becomes you. 
He takes upon himself the punishment you deserve and he makes that unfair exchange. John Stott says this, There is wonderful power in the cross of Christ. It has had the power to wake the dullest conscience, to melt the hardest heart, to cleanse the unclean, to reconcile him who is far off and restore him, to redeem the prisoner from his bondage and the life of the pauper from, oh, sorry, to lift the pauper from the dunghill, to break down the barriers which divide people from one another, to transform our wayward characters into the image of Christ and make us fit to stand in white robes before God. The scandal of the cross. But there's another scandal and absurdity tied to this. Paul says, take a look around. So take a look around. No, really, really, turn around and have a look at the person behind you. Have a look at a, you might need to stand up and have a look at the people at the back, um, just to check them out. Yeah, thank you. We see some of you. I don't, know what, I don't know what you saw out there. I don't know what you see in the school hall today. The hip, the cool, the trendy, the beautiful, the influences, the powerful, all here, right? Yeah. This side. This side. <laughs> yeah, as Christians, we love our celebrities. We want Christian celebrities, don't we? We just so love it when a rugby player gets up at the end of the game and says, you know, Jesus, help me win the game. Um, we want our celebrities. And we sometimes think if only a, another celebrity or two could become a Christian, how cool would that be? Wouldn't it be wonderful you know, if we were going to start a whole religion? We, you know, surely you would start with Bill Gates and the Kardashians, right? I mean, surely those are the people you want in your little church of influence, right? And what does God do to change the world? He starts with fishermen. And it doesn't get better than that because he uses us. And, I mean, there's one or two of you that are beautiful. I'm not sure which ones. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but in all honesty, let me take you down a peg or two. You know, we're kind of average, aren't we? Yeah, other than Damon. But the rest of us, we're kind of average. We're not hugely influential. We're not hugely wealthy. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of say in what happens in the world around us. We're just kind of rather ordinary people. And Paul says this is kind of the scandal and the mystery of it all. That the God of the universe would save you. I mean, of all the people that he could choose to save, right? And he chooses you. Here's how Paul defines the people of the church of Corinth, the people that God has saved. He says, God has chosen the weak, the foolish, the low, and the despised. I'm not sure which of those categories you fit in there. It's not to say that God will never save a celebrity. He has, he does. There are a few. Alice Cooper, Denzel Washington, a couple of hundred years ago, Lady Huntingdon was very wealthy, one of the wealthiest women in England at the time. And she was a huge supporter and financial backer of the early Methodist movement. And she says, I was saved by the letter M. Because Paul says not many of you were wealthy, instead of saying not any. 
But Paul says, God does this. He fills the church with ordinary people so that none of you can boast. So none of us get to say, well, of course he saved me. <laughs> Look at him. Yeah. What's not to like? It's by the cross and through the cross. I, 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 I'm going to end here by saying, I hope I can echo the words of Paul at the end then, or the first part of chapter 2, where Paul says, When I first came to you, I did not come with eloquent speech, but I came with much fear and trembling and in weakness. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, proclaiming the cross of Christ. I, I, I came here 23 years ago, um, young and foolish. I don't know, maybe I was over-arrogant. I don't know what I was back then. It's too long ago to remember. And I don't know that I've spent too many uh, years in this pulpit, uh, you know, too many Sundays in this pulpit, sprouting words of deep wisdom and eloquence and knowledge. I, I think I've become a better orator as the years have gone by. And perhaps there have been times when I've been clever and artful and, you know, but I hope that none of that has distracted from the primary message, Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, I resolved to know nothing other than Christ and Him crucified. I decide to know nothing among you. And I trust that that sentiment lies at the heart of your being too. And I know you, you need to know how to use a can opener. You need to know how to operate the interweb. You need to know how to get dressed. Some of you may need to know how to disarm a nuclear weapon. And some of you may become very much self-proclaimed experts on end times, on spiritual gifts, spiritual warfare. It's in my notes, John. Spiritual bell ringing. <laughs> but one thing that you all must know and what must live at the very center of your being is this, Christ and Him crucified. I've said this many times over the years. I discovered this week that I've stolen it. I've stolen this line from John Stott. We never move on from the cross of Christ, only into a more pro profound understanding of the cross. It's the cross that casts a long shadow over us. Feeling burdened this week? Feeling overwhelmed this week? Feeling guilty and condemned this week? Feeling self-righteous and proud this week? Can I suggest that you take some time each day this week to consider the cross, to do what Stephen said and be like a cow and just, you know, don't chew on grass, but go and read, <laughs> go and read those, also the stories again of Jesus' crucifixion. Read them slowly. Let them linger. Reflect on the cross. Sit at the foot of the cross and allow that absurd scandal of the cross to wash over you once again. I'm going to ask the band to come up. While they're coming up, let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. In so many ways, it appears on a kind of a human level as utterly ridiculous, um, utterly foolish. Why would anyone want to place their hope 
and a God who gets nailed to a cross. And, and kind of the, the absurdity of the idea. But for those who believe, we see power in the cross. That out of weakness comes great power. That in laying down your life, we are set free. That in laying down your life, you release us from the absurdity and meaninglessness of a life that is lived in a cold, empty and heartless universe. Lord, this morning, may we embrace the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Yeah, close by singing, this is amazing grace. Let's stand. the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the old earth with holy thunder who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all kings This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would hear my cry You lay down your life And I will be set free Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me chaos back into order who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of love of me who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace, this is unfailing love, that you would take my place, that you would hear my voice, that you live your life, that I would be set free. Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me.
Prince of Amun Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. just think about what Chris has been talking about, the foolishness of the cross and yet that focus that is not the foolishness by looking at what Christ did for us on it. Father, we just thank you for this time to morning. this morning. We thank you for the lessons that we have learned. Help us to go forward this week and consider and uh, just think about all of the things that have been said here today. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of us and keep us safe until we can meet again. For us is in Christ's name. Amen. Gregory! What did he do? Cut him off? Just <laughs> <laughs>